0: Um, Before we dive into our message today and pray together, let me just remind you also of the uh, missionary prayer board that's outside. It'll be out through today, so if you haven't taken advantage of signing up to uh, pray for one of our missionaries and make that commitment and put it up on the board, you can do that today still. So please do if you are intending to do that uh, before you leave the building today. That would be good. Can we pray together? Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. We're grateful for the the ways that you gather us. Thanks for the opportunity to open your word together as a family. We want to hear you speak this morning. We want to be changed. We want to acknowledge before you right now our need for growth, our need for transformation, and we want to express our faith that you have the power and the ability to do that. You love us so much that you won't leave us as we are, broken, sinful people. You have a plan that you are working out in each one of our lives that involves growth and holiness and transformation. And we need it so desperately. We need it for ourselves. We need it for our families. We need it for our marriages. Would you work today as we open your word and we consider what it says to us about marriage in particular, help us to see the bigger picture and help us to Respond with faith and obedience, faith and repentance where it's needed. Father, give us grace this morning as we listen to your word. Change us where we need to be changed from the inside out. We can't do this on our own. We thank you that you haven't left us to our own devices or our own strength. You've put your spirit within each one of us and you empower us to live differently. So help us to know how to do that. Help us to know what our role and our responsibility is in that. Strengthen our marriages, strengthen our families, strengthen us as your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon's going to be a little bit different than what you might be accustomed to with me in particular. Um, it's going to be somewhat circular. Uh, we're going to be talking about the purposes of marriage that. God lays out in the scriptures and we're going to see those purposes from several different angles. So we're going to talk about them and then we're going to circle our wagons back and talk about them again and circle around and talk about them again and we're going to look at them from multiple angles. So if you have a bulletin and you have sermon notes, you'll see that there are no blanks. It's not a typical outline, but that's laid out for you where we're headed, what we're going to be talking about and you can jot down notes all over the place if you are inclined to take notes. Um, But it won't be quite the usual linear progression from point to point to point. And I just want to make you aware of that up front. So as we kind of move through this in a roundabout way, uh, hopefully you'll be able to follow and track and be able to hear what the Lord has to say. I must comment, this is very different. There's a wide gap right here, but everybody's kind of sitting out there. So I'll turn my head as much as I can. So let's dive in. What does God intend for marriage? What does God intend for marriage? Can we simply summarize the purposes that God has for human marriage? Scripture seems to present three practical purposes for marriage, which find their proper place under one overarching purpose, which we can view from two different angles. God created marriage for His own glory... That's the single overarching purpose for marriage. to become one so that each one individually and both together may uniquely glorify God. We can see this happening in two important ways. First, a husband and wife motivate each other and challenge each other to greater holiness. God uses a husband to sanctify his wife, and God uses a wife... ...to sanctify her husband. Our holiness fulfills God's will... ...and brings Him glory in this world. Second, God intends marriage to glorify Him... ...by serving as a parable or a picture... ...of Christ's relationship with the church. Within this overarching purpose of marriage... ...God portrays three practical purposes for human marriage. First, we can see that God intends marriage to remove aloneness... To state it more positively, God intends marriage to provide intimate companionship. Second, God designed marriage as the proper context for the production and growth of children. Third, God designed marriage as the proper context for sexual expression. So let's explore what Scripture says about each of these three practical purposes, and then we'll step back to take in the larger picture of glorifying God in pursuing holiness together and displaying Christ's relationship with the church together. So first we talk about intimate companionship. God gave the first humans a commission that a single human alone could not accomplish. Genesis 1.28 says... Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Knowing this ahead of time, it might seem odd that God would create the man alone. But upon further reflection, it makes all the sense in the world. After the repeated assessment of creation in Genesis 1, and it was good. It's surprising to hear God assess something as not good in Genesis 2, 18. It is not good that the man should be alone. The man seems to become aware of his aloneness as he observes and names the animals God had created. God graciously provides the remedy by constructing a woman from the man's side. The man recognizes that he now has a helper fit for him a companion with whom he can progress in the great task God had assigned him to do. This makes great sense because the man can see for himself his need for the woman. However, this need to remedy aloneness goes much deeper than simply for the sake of fulfilling God's great creational commission. In Genesis 1, and 27, we learn that God has created humanity man and woman together, in his own image. Even though the animals were also created male and female, the passage doesn't mention that fact for the animals. Instead, gender differentiation is only highlighted within humanity. This tells us that there's something unique and important about human gender. From the larger context of Scripture, we know that God exists eternally as a community of three divine persons in relationship with each other, Father, Son, and Spirit. If God created humanity to reflect Him in some sense, we shouldn't find it odd that He created humanity to exist as a community as well. Moreover, because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit live in intimate relationship with each person functioning differently, we should expect man and woman to exist in intimate relationship with each person functioning differently. Gender differentiation, existing as male and female, and marrying as male and female, serves the practical purpose of facilitating procreation but it also serves to communicate the differentiation within the Trinity. Within the Trinity, the differentiation does not consist in anatomical gender. After all, the Father and the Spirit have no physical body and therefore cannot have gender. The Son didn't have a physical body either until the Incarnation. God has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Spirit which reflects the nature of the eternal relationality of God. He has chosen to reflect this fundamental aspect of his identity in his image bearers in the form of gender differentiation, among other things. Moreover, if God is love, as we learn in 1 John, then he always exists as love. Love requires at least two persons. Love, by almost any definition, and certainly by its biblical depiction, requires both a receiver and a giver. Thus, we read in John 17, 24, that the Father loved Jesus before the foundation of the world. For humanity to reflect God's love, there must be a giver and a receiver. The second practical purpose we can look at in Scripture is reproduction. Reproduction. The first aspect of God's great creational commission certainly necessitated the man and the woman to work together, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, Genesis 1:28. However, God more clearly reveals his intention for human procreation in his discussion of marriage in Malachi 2:15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union, and what was the one God seeking? godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Simply adding humans to the planet is not precisely what God had in mind. Rather, God intended for godly marriages to produce godly children. This intention also mirrors God. Pastor David White writes, the single image of God separated into the two sexes, is reunited in a physical union powerful enough to create life. The love between the persons of the Trinity spilled out into creating not merely a universe for God to enjoy, but into creating people who could receive and enjoy and return the love of God. But here we also notice the wondrous grace of God yet again. God gave the great creational commission to a sinless man and a sinless woman living in the Garden of Eden. The commission then would involve them marrying and producing sinless children. But when the man and woman rebelled against God, everything in creation became broken. Their ability to produce sinless children was gone. God graciously enabled them to continue having children, but at great cost and in great pain. And throughout the generations, women especially have experienced the grief of barrenness and miscarriages and infertility. Throughout the generations, both husband and wife have borne that grief to some degree, but women bear it uniquely. This is an ugly reminder that this world is not what it once was. But, ultimately, this commission would result in one day producing the Messiah, the descendant of Eve who would defeat the serpent, reverse the curse, and establish a new creation. But, in the meantime, God still desires the production of godly children. God has not revoked the great creational commission but it shifted into the more familiar Great Commission as expressed in Matthew 28:19 and 20. Perhaps we should call it the Great New Creational Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. While Christian couples rightly desire to grow their own families through bearing children. When the brokenness of this world shows itself in infertility, we don't need to believe that God has abandoned us or that we have less significance in the kingdom of God than others who do and can have children. Rather, we have an opportunity to pour ourselves into making disciples. The parallel between having and raising children and making disciples... ...comes through in the various metaphors for salvation and spiritual growth... ...that come from language literally used to describe the raising and production of children. Giving birth and nursing babies are images that are used in the New Testament... ...to talk about discipleship and spiritual growth. This highlights how the remedy for the not-good aloneness of Adam... ...can be experienced by those who never marry or those who lose their spouse. The new creation remedy for aloneness is the church. Every individual in Christ is joined to every other individual in Christ. And since God calls uh, calls us all to live our lives in community with other believers, in particular churches, singles, widows, and divorcees can experience an appropriate intimate companionship in fellowship with other believers. Now, having said that, I don't pretend that fellowship with other believers in the local church is an equal replacement for widows who have lost their spouses. It's just not. And I understand that. Death remains the great enemy of God's creational purposes. And so... We all look forward with eager longing for the destruction of that final enemy and the wiping away of the tears that death causes. So the third purpose, practical purpose for marriage we see in Scripture, is the proper context for sexual expression. It might seem odd to separate sexual expression into its own category since God has designed the sexual union to produce children. However... Sexual intercourse serves other equally important functions in marriage. As we argued last week, the physical connection and intimacy of sexual intercourse serve as a sign of the marriage covenant. Initially, it serves as the ratifying sign of the marriage covenant, and perpetually, it serves as the renewal of the covenant, a vivid reminder of the promises made to each other, encompassing the entire person body, mind, and emotions. Secondly, sexual intercourse provides a source of intense pleasure and enjoyment for the husband and wife together. In sexual intimacy, husband and wife enjoy a special opportunity for the expression of unique love as each one works to ensure the enjoyment of the other. God is the source of true pleasure And he created humans with the capacity to experience intense physical pleasure in sex. This pleasure is good. It's not something to be embarrassed about or to feel guilty over. Moreover, we open ourselves completely to our spouse, making ourselves vulnerable, trusting their love and acceptance of us. This vulnerability is perhaps the reason abuses of sexuality, both within and outside of marriage, create such deep and lasting pain. Thirdly, as sexual connection increases intimacy, it provides a unique kind of protection for our spouse. In First Corinthians 7, 2, Paul commands husbands and wives to freely and regularly connect sexually because of the temptation to sexual immorality. God has graciously provided a protective measure against the power of sexual temptation. And that measure is the reciprocal self-giving of husband and wife to each other. Young people hear a lot about practicing safe sex. But the truth of the matter is that there is no such thing outside of marriage as safe sex. And we can go further. According to Scripture, within marriage, sex is not merely safe it's a gift to be celebrated and enjoyed. Now let's back up and talk about pursuing holiness for the glory of God. In each of the three practical purposes we've discussed, we can see a pursuit of holiness. Our intimate companionship enables us to obey God together. The submission and respect of the wife toward her husband and the sacrificial love and care of the husband for his wife depicts holy obedience to the Lord. The joyous pursuit of holiness in the wife's submission to and respect for her husband occurs as she gladly offers to submit to her husband in obedience to God. It does not occur if the husband demands his wife's submission and respect as a duty. Likewise, the joyous pursuit of holiness in the husband's love and care for his wife occurs when he gladly assumes responsibility for her well-being at whatever cost to himself. It does not occur if the wife must attempt to cajole or manipulate an irresponsible husband into mature manhood. Secondly, the production of godly children requires the pursuit of both holiness and wisdom. Paul commands fathers, especially in Ephesians 6, 4, "'Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord.'" Paul's reference to discipline and instruction likely comes from the book of Proverbs, where the wise father instructs his son in the way of wisdom. As a corollary, Paul commands children in Ephesians 6:1, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That little phrase, in the Lord, implies that parents must ground their instruction of their children in God's instruction, God's Word. Moreover, training our children or other people as disciples of the Lord Jesus requires our pursuit of holiness. The author of Hebrews follows his discussion of God's discipline of us, paralleled by a father's discipline of his children with a command in Hebrews twelve fourteen to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Moreover, if we're going to model what following Jesus looks like to our children and others, we must pursue holiness. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Thirdly, in our sexual expression, we must pursue holiness. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 13:4, "Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous." Likewise, as we mentioned earlier, enjoying sex regularly and lovingly together can help protect us from giving in to sexual temptation. We also pursue holiness as we seek to remain faithful to our vows, to our spouse. What about displaying Christ's relationship with the church for the glory of God? We can also see reflections of Christ's relationship with the church in each of the three practical purposes we just talked about. First, the intimate companionship of a husband and wife should illustrate Christ's permanent presence with His people. As Jesus declared the Great Commission, He made this stunning promise to all of His people at the end of Matthew twenty-eight twenty. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As Christ promises His permanent presence with the church, so also the husband and wife promise to remain with each other until death do us part. Also, we recall that God originally created the woman as a helper fit for the man, which highlights her compatibility with the man to work together with him to fulfill God's great creational commission. But as helper, the woman reflects a role God claims for himself in his promise to remain with us. Right after the author of Hebrews calls married Christians to keep the marriage bed pure and holy... He adds in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Combining Joshua 1, 5 with Psalm 118, 6 and 7, the author affirms God's permanent commitment to remain with His people, so that His people can depend on Him as their helper. Thus, the lifetime help a wife offers to her husband depicts the eternal help God Himself provides. A lifelong companionship can only provide a vague reflection of eternal life with Christ, but it's a true reflection nonetheless. Moreover, although it's true that marriage is for this age only, we shouldn't think that our relationship with our spouse will not continue into the age to come. Rather, we have good reason to believe that our relationship with our spouse will become more intimate and less limited in the age to come. The nature and the boundaries of the relationship will surely change so that it won't be characterized by a particular marriage covenant, but we should expect our relationships to continue into eternity and only deepen and improve. Second, we can see a picture of Christ's relationship with the church in the way we raise our children and make disciples. In Ephesians 5, to 27 Paul focuses his comparison between Christ and the husband, highlighting the purpose of Christ's self-sacrificing love for the church— He writes, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ has redeemed the church to make her holy, as he nourishes and cherishes it until he returns finally, to present her to himself as his radically transformed bride. Paul here lays the responsibility on the husband to nourish and cherish his wife, which surely also focuses on cultivating her holiness and purity. If Paul summons a husband to love, nourish, and cherish his wife like Christ does these things for the church then the voluntary self-sacrifice of the husband remains centrally in view. A husband's love, nourishing, and cherishing of his wife, which he should offer with a view to cultivating her holiness, will come at great cost to himself. That cost should be paid, not begrudgingly, but as Jesus did, willingly, eagerly, and for the joy set before him. When a husband sacrifices himself for the holiness and pleasure and joy of his wife, Christ's love for the church is on display in parabolic form. How does a wife respond to such love? Or, as too often is the more accurate description of reality, how does a wife cultivate an atmosphere that encourages her husband to accept this kind of responsibility? Paul sets a Christian wife parallel to the church in Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, it's probably necessary to mention at this point that the verb submit is not reflected in the Greek text of Ephesians 5.22, but it's intended to be brought down from Ephesians 5.21. So, many folks take Ephesians 5.21 as teaching a kind of mutual submission. Where neither husband nor wife truly leads, since Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. However, the logic of the entire passage, which really begins at 5.15 and goes all the way down to 6.9, suggests that Ephesians 5.21 serves as a kind of heading. For what follows, so that Paul is introducing a section here where he's going to talk about different kinds of relationships within a Christian household and how submission should look in each of those relationships. In none of these specific relationships is the submission reversible. Namely, wives submit to husbands, children obey their parents, slaves obey their masters. He refuses to leave the wife in the submissive position without highlighting and emphasizing the husband's heavier responsibility in the relationship. The relationship between a head and a body, and the relationship between Christ and the church, which is to be reflected between husband and wife, clarifies the relationship between loving and submitting. Loving includes leading. Instructing and guiding for the wife's benefit. Submitting includes following, learning, and responding out of respect for the responsibility God has given to the husband. We'll have a lot more to say about that in a few weeks. For our purposes today, suffice it to say that Jesus directs the church and the church follows Jesus wherever he leads. And the church doesn't perfectly follow Jesus, doesn't perfectly submit to Christ in this age. Neither individual members nor churches, considered as local bodies, obey Jesus perfectly. However, Jesus always directs rightly. Jesus always commands things that are both pleasing to God and beneficial for us. Husbands, not so much. So... Marriage, with its complementary relationship of headship and submission, leadership and following, initiating and responding, can be a bumpy ride. To keep the journey moving forward, forgiveness must be the watchword over every Christian home and marriage. A husband will love and lead his wife poorly at times, and too often not at all. A wife will mistrust her husband and rebel against his leadership, sometimes even when he means well and knows better. God has designed this dance knowing husbands will fail, knowing wives will rebel. How does this dance then reflect Christ's relationship with the church? Often the reflection comes in the abundant and repeated outpouring of mercy and forgiveness. Of course, between Christ and the church, the abundant and repeated outpouring of mercy and forgiveness is only one way. While in the marriage relationship, it should be reciprocal. What does this have to do with raising children or making disciples? Well, a husband should view his wife as his most important disciple, and a wife should view her husband as her most important disciple. At different times and in different ways, a wife will have much to learn from her husband about God, about the scriptures, about herself, and about the world. Likewise, at different times and in different ways, a husband will have much to learn from his wife about God, about the scriptures, about himself, and about the world. The scriptures put the responsibility for this give and take squarely on the shoulders of the husband But, if the husband thinks that he cannot or is not supposed to learn about God from his wife, he doesn't see her or God very well at all. Still, what does this have to do with raising children? As the New Testament writers sometimes depict the church or individual churches as the household of God, marriage creates a household, a new family. A man's conduct in caring for and providing for his family comes into play when a church considers whether to ask him to serve as an elder, as does his faithfulness to his wife. 1 Timothy 3, 1-5. Moreover, the author of Hebrews compares a father's discipline of his children, which has the positive goal of producing wisdom, maturity, and godliness, to God's discipline of us, his adopted children. Hebrews 12, 4-11. Thus, the training and instruction of children can highlight and illustrate God's training and instruction of the church. How does that connect with what we've said about marriage? Marriage remains the proper context for the raising of godly children. If a father and mother don't illustrate the relationship between Christ and the church very well, how else are their children going to see and learn what that more ultimate relationship is supposed to be like. Now, it's important to add at this point, God's grace can always overcome our shortcomings and provide what is lacking, which often happens through the example of grandparents or other families in the church. God can also repair later in life what was broken early. In life. Finally, sexual intimacy in marriage, and that phrase is crucial, must be kept in mind as we talk about these things. Sexual intimacy outside of the context of a covenant, of a marriage covenant, does not reflect Christ's relationship with the church. Instead, it creates an ugly, satanic distortion, even in the most quote unquote loving relationship. God designed sexual intimacy to be experienced only in the context of a covenant relationship. Outside of that context, it cannot fulfill its purposes. As Al Mohler writes, God gives man and woman in marriage to share their passions together under the protection of a marriage covenant. However, very often, God graciously redeems the ugliness of sexual unions outside of marriage by producing children from those unions. Sexual intimacy in marriage, then, reflects Christ's relationship with the church. This brings us full circle back around to Genesis 2.24, which Paul quotes as the climax of his discussion in Ephesians 5.22-33. Paul sees in the original pronouncement of Genesis 2.24 a profound mystery. "...concerning Christ and the church, the sexual union as the climax of the marriage covenant that was depicted by those words, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, pointed forward to the greater union between Christ and the church." Specifically, it seems that Paul views the becoming one flesh as representative of individual Christians becoming united to Christ as members of His body. Paul had earlier said in Ephesians 5.23, "...for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior." So, the body... Becoming joined to its head seems most likely to be what Paul sees as the mystery concealed in Genesis 2.24, but now revealed in the gospel. So while it remains correct to see the sexual union depicted in Genesis 2.24, this union depicted as the ratification of the marriage covenant, needs uh, a slight deepening in our understanding. There's a deeper layer that was always there in Genesis 2.24, and Paul draws it out for us. The particular union between a husband and a wife is the connection of a head with a body. The husband is head of the wife. So... Since the sexual union signifies this union between a head and a body, sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife also depicts the intimate union of Christ and the church. Also, enjoying sex together should be a unique and powerful portrayal of the self-emptying love of Christ for His people. There's perhaps no more important place than the bedroom where we ought to practice Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others, your spouse, more significant than yourselves. As Christ sacrificed himself in love for us, so a husband ought to sacrifice himself in love for his wife. As Paul says in Romans 15, 2 and 3... Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. A husband should find great delight in pleasing his wife, and a wife should find great delight in pleasing her husband. At this point, there's always a danger of distortion. A husband must resist falling into the trap of pleasing his wife so that he expects her to please him. ...and vice versa. Now let's talk about falling short. We've circled around and explored the interconnections... ...between all of these pieces of the grand puzzle. Or to change the metaphor, we've been examining the mosaic painting... ...from different angles. A huge question lingers. If that's the design, if those are the purposes... ...how can I get my marriage more in alignment... How can I experience marriage that looks more like what we've been describing? First, all of us who are married, let's just admit our marriages don't meet that picture in various ways. And I'm not intending to be negative here. There appear to be some really great, really healthy marriages in this church. But every person listening to the sound of my voice remains a sinner And every married person listening to the words that I've been saying probably recognizes at least a few areas of inconsistency. Are you always intentionally pursuing your spouse's holiness? Wives, are you always joyfully, eagerly submissive to your husbands? Or are there times where you're unyielding? ...inflexible, wanting your own way for your own purposes? Husbands, are you always lovingly listening to your wife's desires and perspectives? Are you eagerly taking responsibility for the health and happiness and holiness of your family? Or do you sometimes want to tune her and the rest of the world out... ...and lazily plop down in front of the television or the computer... If marriage was designed for intimate companionship, are you seeking to live separate lives in the same house? In clamoring for me time, are you missing out on experiencing the wonder of companionship as God designed it? How quickly does your anger flare up, husbands and wives? And how long does it take to simmer down? How eagerly, how often are you extending mercy and forgiveness when your spouse messes up or really blows it big time? Our marriages have not arrived. But that doesn't mean all is lost. In fact, admitting our failures to measure up to the ideal painted in Scripture doesn't mean we've lost anything at all. Once we've admitted that we can grow, that we need to grow, and we see a clearer target than maybe we've seen before, then the second thing we can do is repent. When we see what particular ways we've failed, we don't lay down and wallow in our guilt or shame. No! We repent. Husbands can stop being so harsh or demanding toward their wives. Wives can stop being so dismissive and disrespectful toward their husbands. Husbands can start prioritizing how to please their wives sexually and how to cultivate their holiness. Husbands can stop focusing so much on their own desires. When wives see their husbands sinning for the sake of their holiness, they can lovingly point it out and seek to help them repent. When wives do this, lovingly point out their sin, husbands can humbly receive correction. Both husbands and wives can and should give each other the benefit of the doubt and assume that the other is trying to love, trying to support, trying to respect, trying to deal kindly with the other. We're too quick to assume the worst about each other, even in our own homes and in our own families. And we react based on our assumptions, which only makes things worse. Repentance and forgiveness must be normal in marriage. That's how holiness is pursued in this fallen world. As long as sin remains, the pursuit of holiness is going to look like continual, repeated, genuine repentance. Finally, I want to issue a plea, and this involves everyone, whether married or not. If there is deep conflict, long-standing problems, serious issues in your marriage, please, please, please bring other people into the situation as soon as possible. Going back to last week... Marriage is not a private relationship. It's a covenant relationship, which means it's a public relationship. Your accountability is not solely between the two of you. There were witnesses to the vows that you made, and you are a part of a church, and the members of this church are committed to coming alongside, supporting, and helping in whatever ways we can. Husbands. I especially want you to listen to me here. If you and your wife are having serious conflict, if you keep arguing about the same issues and you can't seem to come to peaceful, satisfactory resolution, ask for help. Husbands, ask for help. Or, if you're too proud or embarrassed or ashamed... If you're too worried about what other people think and you can't man up to take responsibility and get the help you need, then do not get angry when your wife seeks help. Earlier is better. I'm not talking about coming to see the pastor or going to marriage counseling, though we're here for that too, and that may be needed. I'm talking about a trusted friend who knows you both well. If you don't have any of those within this church, you need to ask yourself why that is and remedy the problem ASAP. Every married couple needs, needs, needs other people involved in our lives who actually know how things are really going. And other people, whether single or married, need to be willing to walk alongside someone who's hurting in their marriage. A part of glorifying God in your marriage is getting the help you need when you need it. It glorifies God when we admit that we don't have the resources in ourselves to solve our problems on our own. God has given us each other in the church to bear these burdens together. How many of our marriage problems would dissolve under the light of exposure. If we just would let other people in just to see what's really going on in our marriage, I'm convinced that our marriages would grow healthier. It's not a magic pill. It doesn't happen in a night or a moment necessarily. But that's a part of the process of healing and restoration. As we conclude, the Bible appears to present one grand overarching purpose for marriage. God created marriage for His own glory. Married couples display God's glory in two primary ways. First, a husband and wife motivate and challenge each other to greater holiness. And second, our marriages are to serve as a parable or a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Our holiness glorifies God. And our depiction of Christ's relationship with the church glorifies God. There are three practical purposes that flow out of this. First, God intends marriage to provide intimate companionship and thereby remove aloneness. Second, God designed marriage as the proper context for the production and growth of godly children. And third, God designed marriage as the proper context for sexual expression. Let's conclude by considering how we know and show God's glory in our marriages specifically. A question we haven't really addressed yet is... What is God's glory? What does it mean to glorify God? Well, the glory of God is basically His importance, His significance, His incalculable worth to you. To glorify God, then, is to show His importance, His significance, His incalculable worth by what we say and how we live. How does marriage show God's importance, God's significance, God's incalculable worth to us in at least three ways? First, the promises our marriages are based on, the vows we make to each other, echo and reflect God's promises of love, devotion, and care for us. Our faithfulness to those promises can, therefore, reflect God's own faithfulness to His promises. Secondly, married life is intended to be a life of intimate companionship, a life of sharing. We share our ideas, our hopes, our longings, our experiences, our possessions, our bodies, our hearts, and our very selves. This sharing reflects the glorious sharing of the Divine Trinity— but there's a third way. How do we most fully understand God's glory? We see God's glory most profoundly and most clearly in Jesus' death on the cross. The night before Jesus died, he told his disciples in John thirteen thirty one, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. As we've talked about how our marriages are designed to paint a picture of Christ's relationship with the church, let me summarize briefly how that looks. We'll develop this in later weeks. Husbands, your love for your wives is supposed to reflect Christ's love for the church. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love is all about pouring yourself out on behalf of someone else without expecting repayment. Just as God's glory is most fully expressed in the self-emptying love of Jesus as He died on the cross, so husbands reflect that when they empty themselves in love and service to their wives and thereby proclaim God's glory. Wives, then, should be the exclusive and special recipient of their husband's self-giving love just as the church is the exclusive and special recipient of God's sacrificial love. As husbands are instructed to love their wives as Christ loved the church, wives are instructed to submit to their own husbands. Husbands imitate Christ in their self-giving love for their wives, but wives also are imitating Christ in their self-giving submission to their husbands. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 reminds us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or used for his own advantage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Wives' submission to their husbands is not about seeing that their husbands get their way. Far more importantly, your submission as a wife takes your focus off yourself and provides you an opportunity to reflect God's glory as Jesus did, coming not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Even in our moments of failure... As flawed, sinful human beings, flawed, sinful husbands, flawed, sinful wives, our marriages can still display the glory of God really well. It's in those times when we hurt each other, or misunderstand each other, or simply overlook each other, and where we have selfishness seemingly come out of nowhere we have a unique opportunity for grace and forgiveness to present itself, and that, too, presents and displays God's glory. It was precisely when we were ugly and unlovable that Christ died for us. And even now, the church is not yet the spotless bride that she will be someday, yet He continues to lavish His love upon us. So as we continue to seek to display God's glory in our marriages and in our church and in our individual lives. May we depend on the power of the Holy Spirit, trust our Heavenly Father, rest in the forgiveness Jesus has secured in His death on the cross, and seek out the help of our brothers and sisters all along the way. Would you pray with me? Father, marriage is a grand gift, a great gift that You have given, a unique gift opportunity for your glory to be on display. Would you help those of us who are married to pursue this this vision, to pursue these purposes? We're going to need your help. We're going to need your power to be at work. If it were such a thing, we could say overtime, but you don't work overtime. You work all the time, and you work perfectly. And we need your power in our marriages. We need your power in our individual hearts to extend the kind of love and grace that is required. Father, thank you for the ways that you have built us up in our families here. Thank you for the health that's there. Thank you for the places that need growth and need help. You're good for that too. Your grace is going to be sufficient for whatever brokennesses we face. And for some listening to my voice and sharing in this prayer, that might be a tall order in their own hearts. Things are so broken and so hurt that it's hard to imagine what healing and restoration could look like. And Father, in those cases, we pray for your mercy to be evident and your power to come through. We need your help. We all need your help. We need your healing. We need your growth. We need your sanctifying power. Thank you that you've promised that very thing. You don't leave us alone in our marriages. You're here with us and you've brought us into your people. Help us to reach out when we need help. Help us to confess our inability. Help us to get beyond our pride and our embarrassment, to seek to protect ourselves from other people's glances. Help us to open ourselves up in vulnerability and find the healing that we need. Father, thank you for the future, the hope of full restoration, the hope of the removal of sin and the elimination of all that holds us back in the full enjoyment of eternal life to come. That's where our hope must be, not in the repair of our marriages, not in the healing of wounds in this life. Our hope must be in the promise of resurrection that will solve all of the brokenness that we face now. So help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher, the one who will bring to perfection and completion our faith. That's where our hope rests. That's our only hope. Help us as we go out in our marriages, Father, we pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.